0: There we go. Uh, So uh, what I'd like to do is just briefly review some of the things that we talked about uh, last week, uh, and then I want to go into Chapter 2, and Chapter 2 presents us with some interesting issues and interesting questions, and uh, and there's, some, I think, some exciting stuff in in Chapter 2 that we want to think about. So uh, as I said last week, we talked about... uh, talked about uh, the end of day six and beginning of day seven what do you remember some of the things we talked about God rested on the seventh day not because he was tired because he was an eternal God but he rested as an example for us and also because his work was finished. He Yeah. 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 He didn't have any more to do. Creation was done. And uh, as we mentioned last week, that's another part of that polemic (laughs) against other ways of viewing the origins. And uh, as a, a telling, in my mind, a telling argument against the idea of this ongoing evolution. The scripture is quite emphatic, that it came to a conclusion that there was an end, that there was a completion to it, and that was on day six, and God then rested because there was no more to do in regard to creation. And he did it for an example for us, that we would learn to rest. And, and I was thinking, we talked a little bit too about this idea that eventually the Lord institutionalized this day of rest with Israel, in the covenant with Israel there at Horeb, uh, the Sabbath day, and he institutionalized that. And that institutional Sabbath we talked about was actually a shadow, it was a foreshadowing of that ultimate rest that we would have in Christ. And he talks about that, of course, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but as I was thinking about that yesterday, reflecting back on that, I was thinking that even God's rest on the Sabbath, uh, on the seventh day, was a foreshadowing of the rest, of our rest. So it's not only that the institutional Sabbath that was given to Israel was a shadow, but I think even God's rest on the seventh day was a shadow, was a foreshadowing of the rest that we would ultimately have in it him when our work is also completed. What else? Remember anything else from last week? Yeah, that was part of the breakdown, wasn't it? The failure to take dominion over the creation. (laughs) And Eve, Eve, and ultimately then Adam, failed to take dominion over the creation, and that's part of, of the whole fall that we'll see when we get on into chapter 3. Anything else sticks out to you that we talked about? I like your point about the creation. effects. Okay. An important job. We talked about uh, we talked about man created in the image of God. Remember anything particular that stood out to you when we talked about man in the image of God? How is man in the image of God different from the angels who have many of the same attributes or characteristics that we as humans have? How what is different between angels and men that makes us in the image of God, whereas an angel is not in the image of God. Maybe we talked about that. Well, I wasn't here last week, but reading the text, I would have to say male and female is a distinctive. Okay, I didn't even think about that. Angels, yeah, well, like I say, since I wasn't here. So are you telling us that God is male and female? I'm saying the angels are not. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. That would was be a political answer. answer. Yes would be the answer to yeah, that question. Okay. Must be if he's We're created in his image. Okay. I don't understand yeah. that. So. Okay. Angels are servants, and mankind is given to Okay, yeah. The main di- di- distinction that the, the I think we see in Scripture is that angels are created as servants. They serve God, they serve mankind, they're created to serve. Mankind is created to have dominion over the creation. So, angels do not have dominion over the creation in a sense that mankind has dominion in. So even though angels are spiritual creatures and intellectual creatures and have freedom, which are many of the aspects that we think of as humans that we have that make us in the image of God, and they do, the one thing that distinguishes us from angels is that we have dominion over creation uh, and the angels do not. Okay. Well, we're, uh, we don't have a lot of time today, so let's move on. We could spend a lot of time in review because we talked about quite a few things. but But let's move on. Uh, We're picking it up now in chapter 2, verse 4. And uh, and we'll get down, I hope, down through about verse 15. We'll see how far we get. But let's begin reading in verse 4. It says chapter 2, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the river flowed out. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The medallion and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Actually, in your Bibles, you may notice that that verse 15 is actually connected in some people's minds with the verses that follow, uh, so it kind of depends on how you look at the passage uh, as to whether or not we should tie it in with the verses we're looking at today or next week, and I'm going to try to do both, so we'll look at it that way. But anyway, that's the passage. And uh, some of the things we need to understand first about verse 4 is verse 4 is a heading. Okay. What what we need to understand is that there's a break at the end of verse three, and verse four is the beginning of a new section of Genesis. Now you remember back several weeks ago when we started our when we did our introduction into Genesis. Genesis. We talked about the ten divisions of Genesis. Remember what we called them? Pardon. Uh, generations. generations or what's the Hebrew term? Remember the Hebrew term? The, the Taladot, or Taladot, okay? That's the word that's translated here uh, uh, in verse 4, accounts, and in later, later verses in Genesis is, is translated as translation, okay? And we talked about these ten generations, or these ten Taladots, or these ten accounts of Genesis. And as we go through Genesis, we're going we're gonna to see, as we talked several weeks ago, we're going to see that Genesis is broken down into these ten sections, <clears throat> these ten taladots, okay, and this is the beginning of the first Taladot, and it goes through chapter, uh, goes uh, up through chapter four, okay, and then we get into the next Taladot. the next, th- this first Taladot is called the Taladot of the heavens and the, or the earth and the heavens, and then the second Taladot is the Taladot of of Adam, uh, and you'll go on down the line, and you'll have the Taladot of of Noah, and you have the Taladot of Noah's sons, and you have the Taladot of Shem, and you'll have the Taladot of Isaac, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have all these different uh, breakdowns, and we talked all about that several weeks ago. It's imperative in understanding Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. It's imperative to understand that this is the first Taladot, or this is the first account of the ten accounts of Genesis. Okay? Uh, the mistake oftentimes that people make when they read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is they read Genesis 1 and they go, oh, this is a really neat story about creation and, you know, and. And it's all very detailed and precise and chronological and all that sort of thing. And then they get to chapter 2, verse 4, and it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then he goes on and he talks about what the earth was like and he talks about the creation. And they make the mistake of assuming that chapter 2 is another account of creation. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, is not another account of creation. Chapter 2 is the first polydottic. Up till this point, we've been looking at what I call the prologue to Genesis, okay? So from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, we have what is basically the prologue, or the introduction to Genesis, okay? Then, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, you have the first of the ten polydots, or the first of the ten accounts, or the first of the ten generations, that he talks about as he goes through the book of Genesis, And, and one thing that's important, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to remind you of it. One of the things that's important to understand about the Taladots is when, when it talks about, for example, the Taladot of Noah, or the account of Noah, when we get to, when we get to uh, chapter 6, uh, I think it's in verse 9 or so, and it talks about this is the account of Noah. Okay? It's really not the story of Noah. It's the story of what follows from Noah's life. In other words, it's the story of his sons. And then you'll get, we'll get to the Taladot in the next couple chapters. After that, we get to the Taladat of Noah's sons. It's not really about Noah's sons. It's about what flows from Noah's sons. okay? And specifically, the generations, the people, and the, and the, and the accounts that flow. Okay, So it's important to understand that the person for whom the Taladat is named is not the person the Taladat is about. Okay? It is, he's simply the beginning point and then the Taladot is about all that flows or results from that person's life okay. so that's how the writer of Genesis chose to structure the book of Genesis by these ten chapters you might call them okay. so one good way to think about the structure of Genesis is that chapter 1 verse 1 through verse, uh, chapter 2 verse 3 is really like the introduction to a book now I don't know how many people, when you read a book, bother to read the introduction, but I'm one of those obsessive-compulsive people, and I have to read the preface and the you know and the notes of thanks and the introduction and everything that goes before I ever get to chapter one. And by the time I get to chapter one, I'm usually bored, you know. But <clears throat> but you'll know when you when you pick up a typical nonfiction book, it'll have a preface, it'll have an introduction, and then you get into the meat of the book. You get to chapter 1, right? And there's a, usually a significant difference in the introduction and chapter 1. And when you get to chapter 1, oftentimes the writer's style changes. The whole way he communicates changes. The subject matter changes, okay? But, but he felt, thought it was important that there's some, some preliminary things you understand before he tells you those things he's going to tell you in chapter 1. So he writes an introduction, okay? Well, that's what the writer of Genesis has done. He has something he's wanting to communicate. We talked about this several weeks ago, about different themes and ideas that he wanted to communicate. But before he gets into the meat of that, he has to give us the introduction. That's the prologue. That's chapter 1 up through 2-3. That's the story of the six days of creation. Now we come to chapter 2 and he's actually launching or, uh, yeah, chapter 2 of Genesis and he's actually launching into what you might think of as the first chapter of the book the first account, the first poem okay? so this is where he actually launches into the presentation of this whole idea of the kingdom of God, the place the people, the rules and the ruler that we talked about uh, several weeks ago as so we talked about the theme of Genesis is this idea of the kingdom of God Okay, now you might think, well, why are we going into this? Why is all this important? Well, it's important because oftentimes when people read Genesis chapter 2, they think it's another account of creation. And then they take the account of creation, that they, what they think is the account of creation in Genesis chapter 2, and they compare it against the account of creation in Genesis chapter 1, and they go, these things contradict each other. These things are at odds. And so they make kind of all kinds of assumptions about the book of Genesis. They make assumption that it was written by different authors. They make assumption that, it w- that it's not accurate, or that maybe the first chapter isn't accurate, or maybe the second chapter isn't accurate, or maybe both of them aren't accurate, because they don't even agree with each other. Okay? Well, most of those mistakes are made because people don't understand the structure of the book of Genesis. And they don't understand the purpose for which the writer is writing Each portion of the book of Genesis. So, as we look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, we have to understand that he's no longer writing the introduction. Now he's beginning to develop these ideas and these themes about the kingdom of God and the people of God and the place of the kingdom and the rules of the kingdom and the ruler of the kingdom. As we said, Genesis focuses primarily on those first two things the people and the place. As you go on into the rest of the Pentateuch, you get into more of the ideas of the rules and the ruler of the kingdom. Okay? But the primary emphasis in Genesis <laughs> is this idea of the people and the place. And that's what he is beginning now to cultivate and, and begin to communicate in this first Toledot. Now, the problem is, as I mentioned, the Toledot is usually named after an individual. Noah, his son, Shem, Isaac, uh, 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 Abraham's father, uh, uh, Terah, yeah, Terah, the, the, the account of Terah. Okay. It's interesting that Abraham is... Uh, the whole story of Abraham, which takes up a significant point of, uh, part of Genesis, isn't even one of the Teladots. His father is the Taladot. So it's the generations of Terah, and then the whole story of Abraham flows out of that. We don't hear much about Terah, because he's just the beginning point of that teledot, Okay, Well, if you go back, you know, you have... You have individuals at the beginning of each one of these poligots who are the you know, beginning of the descendants that that poligot talks about. But the problem is when we get back to Adam, is what? He doesn't have a father, okay? So we can't name we can't name this poligot after an individual, okay? So when the writer of Genesis names this Taladat, he doesn't name it after an individual because Abraham, or excuse me, Adam didn't have a father, an earthly father. So he calls this Taladat the Taladat of the heavens and the earth. Okay. The idea is the heavens and the earth, just like the Taladot of Noah is Noah's the beginning point, but the Taladat is the story of the things that ensued from Noah's life. In the same way, the Taladat of the heavens and the earth, the, the account of the heavens and the earth, uh, the creation of the heavens and earth is not really about the creation of the heavens and earth. It's a story about the things that follow from that creation. Okay? And that's important for us to understand. If we understand that, then when we, as, as we read Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and the chapters that follow, as we read them, we won't be looking for a precise description of creation because that's not what the Taladot about, is about. The Taladot is not about creation. It sounds like that, the way the heading is written in verse 4. But now that we understand how that's the way the whole structure of Genesis is, we realize, well, this this chapter really isn't about creation. This chapter is about the things that flow from creation, the events that occur and the people that flow out of this whole idea of creation. So it's not the intention of the writer in this case. It is not his intention to describe intention to us the creation. He's already done that in the introduction. What he's wanting us to do is to understand the events and the circumstances and the things that flow from that creation. Okay. Now, we believe, I believe, and probably many of you believe that Moses wrote. The book of Genesis, as he did the rest of the Pentateuch, okay. and we talked about this when we did our introduction to Genesis. That does not mean that we believe that he just that Moses just got all of this information by divine revelation. For example, when Luke records the Gospel of Luke for us, he doesn't get all that information just from divine revelation. We understand. We look at the book of Luke and we study the book of Luke, and he tells us precisely. He talked to a lot of people. He did a lot of research. He went to the primary sources. He got information, and then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he compiled those sources together into the Gospel of Luke. He did the same thing with the book of Acts. Okay. Well, we assume that Moses did the same thing particularly with the book of Genesis. He wasn't around. <laughs> Adam wasn't even around for some of this stuff. Okay. He wasn't around. So what Moses did in writing the book of Genesis is he consulted the primary sources. Now, what those primary sources were, we don't really know. Necessarily, no. Uh, I tend to believe that the account that we're looking at here is largely either an oral or written tradition which comes down from Adam and himself. Remember that after Adam's creation, he lived for a number of hundred years, something like 900 years, or they do forget exactly now. We'll see that as we go through the passage. But he lived for several hundred years, so he had plenty of time after these events occurred, to think back on them, reflect back on them, and then either orally or in written form to communicate those things to his descendants so that we would have them. And so I'm assuming that in some fashion or some way or another, Moses accessed the original information, either the oral traditions or some written traditions or a combination of both, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He compiled these things together and gives these things to us. So oftentimes I speak of the narrator. I'll talk of the narrator, and I don't mean to imply by that that Moses did not write Genesis. I mean to imply by that that there are that there's earlier sources back that Moses used uh, as, he, as he communicates his story. So there's some some interesting things to me about this passage. Uh, as I think about the narrator, As he's communicating these things, why is he communicating these things? To whom is he communicating these things? Well, a lot of this stuff we don't know. We don't know to whom these things were first communicated. But we can get some clues as we look at the passage. But there are some things that come clear as we look at the passage and we understand now the intention or the purpose of the writer in communicating. This is part of this whole story of mankind, the beginnings and the origins that he's communicating all the way through the book of Genesis, okay? And what he wants us to understand is that this in this first account, the account of the things that flow directly from creation, he wants us to understand that things are not always have not always been the way they are now. Now, when I say he wants us to understand, let's just kind of pick ourselves up from now, from where we are here in the 21st century. And let's just move ourselves all the way back to the end of the in the pre flood period. Okay? And let's just assume we're somebody living five, six, seven, eight hundred years after creation. Okay? And here is this narrator, Adam, perhaps himself. We may be sitting on great, 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 great grandfather Adam's knee listening to this story. <laughs> Or we may be just one of his descendants, okay, and we're listening and he's telling us the account of what followed from creation. And what he wants us to understand is that the world that we know right now, us being six, seven, eight hundred years after creation, is not the way the world always was. And that's one of the things he's trying to communicate in chapter 2. Again, Notice the dis- difference between chapter two and chapter one. Chapter one is a very precise, very detailed, very chronological presentation of creation. Genesis chapter two, beginning in fourth, totally different. He really doesn't tell us that much about creation. You notice that? He doesn't tell us how the heavens and earth were created. He did in chapter one. He doesn't tell us that in chapter. Two. He doesn't tell us about the creation of light. He doesn't tell us about the separation of water from below from the separation of waters, uh, from the waters above. He doesn't tell us about the separation of land from the water on the surface of the ground. You know, he doesn't tell us about the creation of the animals. Uh, he doesn't tell us about the creation of light. He doesn't tell us about the separation of light. He doesn't tell us about any of that stuff. So obviously, Genesis chapter 2 isn't about creation. It's about the things that flow out of creation. But what he wants us to understand, again, putting yourself back, you know, Many thousands of years ago, what he wants us to understand is this world isn't, wasn't always like this. But well, what was the world like to somebody who was living six, seven, eight hundred years after creation? You're going. I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> Let's think about it. Pardon? Toil. toil. What kind of toil? Hard work. What kind of work? What did most people do back then? Farming. Okay, they were farmers. Whatever. I got stuck at that point, particularly in verse 5. Uh huh. Well, actually, just jumping ahead slightly just to explain this point. People talking about the curse, I've heard people say that hard work and toil is part of the curse. However, in verse 5, he says. Talking about things that were grown, but this is a precursor. Mm-hmm. Things that were not grown, he said, because there was no man to cultivate the ground. Okay, cultivation, I'm assuming, involves toil and work. So mm-hmm. therefore, toil and work is not part of the curse. Okay, but it is, and I'll explain why. Right, and there's there's some distinction there, and I don't know exactly okay. what it is. And, but, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get to. Right. So working the ground, uh, cultivating, working the ground, is something that they did. But it was different. I don't think so, Paul. I don't think so. And I'll explain why. Okay. I'll explain why. Yeah. But let's keep going down the track I'm going, and then we'll All get right there, okay? All right. So, so we're living six, seven, eight hundred years after the, after creation, and a significant period of time after the fall, okay. and and we got everybody's farmers. Okay, what are they farming? Actually, you just live it off the land. Well, they're they're cultivating. They're they're farming. Okay. We we know that by that this point they are actually farming, they're cultivating, they're because it is qu- it is clear by the time you get to Genesis chapter three and you get to the curse that cultivation becomes part of the part of what's called the curse. I don't like calling them curse. Okay they're they're they are growing the plants of the field. And it's interesting that there appears to be a distinction in the scripture uh, and particularly in the story of creation in chapter one, and here there seems to be a distinction between vegetation in general and the plants of the field. And you'll notice that in, chap- in chapter four, or, or chapter two, verse five, he talks specifically about the shrub of the fields and the plants of the field. And so I'm suggesting to you that what chapter five is saying is, listen, you people and I'm telling this story to, the world you know is a world in which you all have to farm to live. You have to cultivate the ground. You plant fields of wheat and corn or whatever they planted back then. And you grew that stuff. And you, this is all you know. And the way it grows is God sends rain, and the rain falls on it, and, and, uh, and it causes it to grow. And you have to cultivate it. And you have to work it. And that's the world you know. But what he wants us to know is that it wasn't always that way. So there was a time, that the narrator here is telling his listeners or his readers, he's saying, you know all about farming and cultivation and rain and all that sort of stuff, but there was a time on the earth when there was no plant of the field. There were no crops as we know of them today. And there was no rain. As we know of it today. Again, think of yourself as five, six, 800 years after the flood. I mean, after the after creation. So, so you're back there, and this guy is telling you, "Listen, this is you guys. You 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 go out there and you farm and you rain and it rains, but but I want to tell you, it wasn't always that way. There was a time when there was no shrub of the field, and there was no plant of the field. There were no cultivated crops, is what he's saying. And there was a time when God did not send rain on the earth." There is, in fact, a time when there wasn't even a man on the earth to cultivate the earth. And what he's trying to do is to set in their minds a frame of reference so that they understand things are not now the way they are. Things are not uh, have not always been the way they are now. It's important for them to understand that. It's important for us to understand. And here we are now in the 21st century and it was basically the same as it was 800 years after creation, right? We're still growing crops and you know, we still live the same way. God's got to send the rain, got to grow the crops, got to have the farmers out there. Now most of us aren't doing that anymore. We, you know, we're hiring people to do that for us. But that's still how we live and how we survive. But it hasn't always been that way. There was a time when there were no cultivated crops. When there were no cultivated shrubs. When there was no rain, as we know it. back. fact, There wasn't any man to cultivate it, And it's important that we know and understand that things are not now the way they have always been. There was a time when they were different. And that's important for us to understand in order to understand the human predicament. We cannot understand the human predicament, and we cannot understand the whole concept of the kingdom of God and what it takes to be a part of the kingdom unless we understand the human predicament. And we cannot understand the human predicament if we assume that things have always been the way they are now. They have not always been the way they are now. There was a time when things were really different. And that's important for us to understand. And it's important for us to understand also because if things have not always been the way they are now, we might also suspect that they won't always be the way they are now. And that's the point. That's the whole point of the redemption story, isn't it? The whole point of the redemption story is things haven't always been this way and things won't always be this way. The human predicament is very real, but in order to understand the human predicament and get a solution to it, we've got to understand how we got into this human predicament. And the narrator here is wanting his his listeners or his readers to understand how did you get in the predicament you're in. You're in a mess now. How did you get there? You haven't always been here. And what he wants them to understand is there was a time when there were not crops in the field. There was a time when there wasn't rain like we know of it today. There was a time when there wasn't even a man on the face of the earth to cultivate the ground. It was different And it was back, in that, and, and so in one sense, these verses, verses five and six, the idea of the mist rising from the earth and that sort of thing, verses five and six are kind of communicating in in, in a very rough sense, kind of the same idea that we got in Genesis chapter one, verse two, when it says that the Lord God, in chapter one, he, in verse one, he said he created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse two, it says the earth was without form and void. Remember, it was formless and void, okay. and. And so it's kind of the sort of the same idea. It's not a strict parallel there, but it's kind of the same idea. As what he's trying to say is, you know, there was a time when the earth, as we know it, didn't wasn't the way it is now. It just it wasn't always that way. There was a time when we didn't have all this stuff. And clear back then, when it, when there wasn't all this stuff, clear back then, God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so then he tells us in one short verse about the creation of man as he did in the introduction in chapter 1. right? But here he tells it differently. Not because it's a different creation, not because God did something different here than he did in chapter 1. But he's trying to make a different point. And so he develops different Aspects of this creation that took place. And we discover something in chapter 2 that we didn't know in chapter 1 about the creation of man. All we know in chapter 1 is that God deliberated God among himself, among the Trinity, that they would create man in their image, and then they created him. That's all we know from chapter 1. But we discover something from chapter 2 that when God did this, there were two essential components in the creation of man, which is what? Formed the he formed, man in the formed him out of what? Out of the dust of the ground. So the two important components are the dust of the ground and the breath of God. We cannot understand the whole story of redemption and the things that the writer of Genesis is eventually going to try to communicate to us unless we understand this dual aspect of That he is of the dust of the ground, and that he has in him the breath of God. And, And we have to understand, we have to know, we have to have this perspective upon ourselves that we are but dust. That communicates the humility. The humbling aspect of it right there. The humility of man, the humbleness of man. We're just from the dust. Like all the rest of creation, you know. When your dog dies, sorry to talk about it, but he is going to do what When your dog dies, you know, he's going to just rot, decay, and go back to dust. Okay, so are you. That's, that's the humility aspect. But there's something different about man. There's something different about us that sets us apart from all the other creatures. And in chapter 1, we discover that that's the image of God. I think he's bringing out that same idea here now when he talks about he breathed into him the breath, into his nostrils the breath of life. And there's that idea there that God, that, that we are not simply dust. We are not simply animals. We're not simply the smartest, biggest, cleverest animal on the earth. First place, we're not the biggest. And some people would question whether or not we're even the smartest. Okay, so, But, but, but even if we were, we're not. Because we are much more than that. We are not only quantitatively different, we are qualitatively different. Because we have in us the breath of God that God has animated every human being with his spirit. Jim was telling a story earlier in our prayer time about this memorial service we went to yesterday. And, and one of the things that struck me and just kind of how that whole story unfolded was that there were a lot of people who stood up and just shared about the impact that this man had on their life. How he, they encouraged, yeah, he encouraged him spiritually, helped lead him to the Lord, uh, you know he just he really clearly it had, had a very profound spiritual impact on a lot of people and that's how I knew him but then his oldest daughter got up and kind of told the other side well, it is interesting that out of the six children they didn't all see things the same way that mm-hmm. the, the oldest daughter saw and the youngest daughter uh, saw things really quite differently but but the, the, the oldest daughter stood up and shared that's not the father I knew and talked about this kind of distant emotional and, and when she was saying that I was thinking Dust and breath. Dust and breath. We're both things, folks. We have the image of God in us. We have the breath of God. We have the life of God in us. But folks, we're just dust. And we have to keep that perspective. We have to keep that perspective on ourselves. And when we start getting kind of too highfalutin and thinking too much of ourselves, we need to remember that We are formed from the dust of the ground, and when we get, when we get pretty discouraged, and we get pretty down, and we see how much we failed, and we failed our family, and we failed other people, and we're riddled with illness, and all the things that go on that are part of the human predicament, we have to remember that God has breathed His life into us, and the very reason we live is because God has made us live in a special, unique way in which none of the rest of creation lives. And we need to keep those things, that perspective true about us, but you also need to keep that perspective true about the person who sits next to you. Remember, they are but dust. And remember, they have the life of God. From the side of it? and, And the writer of Genesis, the narrator here, he wants his listeners or readers, he wants them to understand that whatever else they see around them, whatever else is going on, they need to know, yeah, you folks, you were made of the dust of the ground, but you also have had God breathe His life into you. Now, when God does that, and He doesn't tell us chronologically how these things happen. That's important to understand. There's no chronology here. But He tells us that He also did something else. He created man, but then He did something else on the earth. What was that? Well, before he placed them, what did he do? He planted a garden. He planted a garden. That's one way I'm not made in the image of God. I would never think of planting a garden. I don't like working, you know. Never mind. We won't go there. But anyway, God planted a garden. And it really needs a garden. The, the word there, the idea there, is a walled in or protected or sheltered place of just splendid beauty and bountifulness. And, and so we've been talking about this magnificent creation of all the earth that God made, but somewhere on that earth, in a place called Eden, which I assume the listeners to the narrator understood where that was. okay? Because he says he planted a guard, garden in Eden. He doesn't introduce Eden to him. He introduces the garden to him because they don't know about the garden, but he doesn't introduce Eden to him implying they knew where Eden was. Okay? But somewhere in Eden he planted a garden. And he planted this garden for what purpose? Boy, this is unusual. I have five people answer at once. Okay. Say it again? Okay, now nobody answered us. To place the man. Okay. So God creates this garden. The Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which was the first translation of the Old Testament into Greek, written, uh, it's 100, 100, 200 years before Christ. The Septuagint version, the word they used there for the garden is the word we translate paradise. So God created and planted a paradise. And in this paradise is every tree that is beautiful to look at and that is good for food and so this is just this beautiful, luscious, bountiful, protected place. The, the Garden of Eden is, is a foreshadowing in the first place of the tabernacle. but It is also a picture for us of that ultimate paradise. Okay. A place of bountifulness, a place of protection, a place of safety a place of rest, a place of beauty. We can't imagine what it was like. Now what is interesting to me is that God planted this garden and he had the whole earth, but he made this one place really special. And then you notice what it says, what did he do with man? He placed him there. He placed him there. Now he tells us that after he says he created Created him, then he put him there. It's twice it tells us in verse eight and in verse fifteen. It says he put him there. What does that imply? It was somewhere else in he was somewhere else before that. And I was thinking about this yesterday, and I got excited because I don't know where he created it at. He might have created him in Oklahoma. I have my doubts. Okay, but or Texas. <laughs> Uh, or Nebraska, yeah. Okay. He might have, but I doubt it. But anyway, he created himself. But at some point, he took him and he put him in this gorgeous, luscious, beautiful, which compared to the rest of creation was just spectacular. It was paradise. And I thought, why did he do that? Why didn't he just create him in paradise to start with? Do you ever think about that? My wife's been wanting a new bedspread for a long time. You wonder what this has got to do. We tried. She wanted, but she had to be exactly the right shade of burgundy. Okay, it had to be just right. So she's wanted it for several years, and she's been looking. She's never could find it. Finally, here a few months ago, she ordered one off the internet. She thought it was the right color, and it came, and it wasn't. Send that. Then she goes to Kohl's a few weeks later and she buys one and she brings it home. Just not quite right. Well, my wife's pretty good on a sewing machine, you know. I said, why don't you just go buy the right fabric and make it, you know? Well, there were reasons why she didn't feel like she could get it the way she wanted it. But when I said that to her, she went, I know how I could do this. So she. You know, the next day, boom, there was fabric in the house. And about three days later, there was the bedspread. You know, she had it made, something pointful. And so she puts it on the bed. And later in the day, she brings Petrina into the room to show her the bedspread. And Petrina says, oh, I was in here earlier and I was looking at it. It's neat. And she's going, you came in and looked at it earlier? When I wasn't here to see your reaction? You ladies know what I'm talking about here, don't you? Well, He takes Adam and he creates him over here and he brings him to the... because he wants to see Adam's reaction. When Adam Adam goes, wow, I thought the rest of this was pretty cool. This is awesome. And then he understands that God made it for him. It's yours, Adam. And he puts him... In the garden. Now, let me just mention quickly that you'll notice of those verses about the rivers and you know the land, and he, and he talks about the, the Pishon and the Gihon and Havilah and Cush and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and what's very clear, you know, we have no clue where those things are. I mean, we kind of think. And if you really want to know what I think, I think that Eden was located somewhere in the region of eastern. Turkey, Armenia, in that area. I think that. I have no way of proving that. I just kind of look at those verses and I go, eh, I kind of think But you got to remember all this description is pre-flood. Okay, This is before the flood. Okay, Things have changed since then. Okay, Tigre, Obviously, the Tigris and Euphrates no longer came, come from the same headwaters. So obviously, things have changed. So we don't know where it's located. But there, what, what is important about that description of the location is that to the narrator and to his listeners, there was a place. There was a geographical location was there where there was a real garden. It's not mythical. It's not allegorical. There was a real garden. And it's imperative that we believe there was a real garden. Because if you have no real garden, you have no real Adam and Eve. And if you have no real Adam and Eve, you have no fall. And if you have no fall, you have no salvation. And so it is imperative that we understand the garden was a real place in a real location. And it was created and it was splendidly beautiful and it was put there. It was created by God in order to put man in it. And after he had it all fixed up and just the way he wanted it, then he brought Adam over and he put Adam in it. And Adam thought, oh, this is awesome. This is for really awesome. God, you really love me. You really love me that you would do this and I was thinking about that last night. I was lying on my bed and I was thinking, how many times in our lives does God do little edens for us? And He brings us to them. And we don't notice. Because we're fallen and we're, we don't notice those little edens that He gives us. Sure, it's not I know it's not paradise. But as I lie there on my bed last night, I had a really rough week this week. This was not a happy week. And, and by Thursday night, I was saying to my wife, I was saying, I shouldn't even have gone to work today. This was stupid to even think about going to work today. And as I was lying on my bed last night, I thought, how many evenings has God given me this week? And I just started trying to think about Him and tell Him, God it was beautiful. He did this for me this week, God, and it was beautiful. And He did this for me this week and it was beautiful. And you did this for me this week and it was beautiful. And you've given me this this week and it was beautiful. And even in those ugly, difficult things that happened to me this week, you did some neat things in me and that was beautiful. God brought ye Adam, to the garden and he saw it was beautiful. And in that garden were two trees in particular, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll talk about those two trees as we go forward in the story. Only one of those trees, incidentally, was he prohibited to eat from. You're going to say something. Yes, I think, uh, you know, the we Lord put Adam in the garden, but then, after he placed him in the garden, he made a woman. He did. And your observation is, I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to argue with that at all. <laughs> but there's one other thing I want to point out. At the end of verse 15, it says he put him there to cultivate and to keep it. And this comes back a little bit to the question humans raised. Uh, John Salehammer in the Expositive Bible Commentary observes that that is the historical translation, to cultivate and to keep goes all the way back to the Septuagint. But there are some problems with the Hebrew text there that indicate that that's possibly not the right translation. There are some problems there with the agreement of gender in the verse, and I won't go into all that. There are some problems with the agreement of gender. And hammer suggests that the right translation of the verse is to worship and to obey. He put him in the garden to worship and to obey, and I think that is the right translation. That is the right understanding. And there's we're out of time. We might want to explore some of this next week a little bit more. But but I think that the whole idea of man cultivating the ground does not come about until the curse. And what and what the writer here is trying to tell us is, you know, I, know, I know you people. You're having to work really hard now. And you have to work by the sweat of your brow. Always that way. There was a time when man was in paradise, and all he had to do was walk up to a tree, and everything he needed was provided for him. And God planned, and God cared for it, and God tended for it. And it's interesting the second time there in verse 15, where he says he put the word put there, the, the Hebrew word put there carries with it the connotation of rest. And so it's like God put man in the garden to rest. And whatever unfolds from now on is going to be, has to be held in the context of that. Now, there's one other thing I meant to mention I didn't, and I don't have time to talk about it now, so I'm going to try and talk about it next week. We're out of time. And that is this interesting fact. I don't know if you noticed, but beginning in verse 4, do you notice how that identifies God every time? in this whole story and all the way through chapter 3 it's the Lord God. It's Yahweh Elohim. 20 times in two chapters he uses that combination for the name of God. Only one at a time in the entire Pentateuch does he do that and only about 8 or 9 more times in the entire Old Testament. But 20 times he identifies him here in this passage as Yahweh Elohim. The covenant God of the salvation history is the one who is active. Okay? Well, you're well.